0: Good morning, C4 Church. We're so glad to be with you this morning. Good to be back. And uh, again, we just want to welcome many of you watching and listening on, online. And what a day it's been for Canada. It's an unbelievable day. What a week it's been. I will withhold all my comments to my U.S. friends right now who are watching. We love you and Jesus. That's all I'll say. Well, as Pastor Ange just said, we are now at the very end of this very significant series for our community out of the book of Ephesians. And if you've got your Bible here this morning, virtually or physically, we'd love you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. This series has been called The Church United. And here today, one last time, here physically and virtually... We get to hear and see and experience God's hopes and His dreams, His will and His command for us truly to be a church united, truly to be all in this together. Now between two series, we've gone through the book of Ephesians this year, and if you recall Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, God showed us the great truths, the great doctrines of our faith, and he grounded your personal identity and each local church's identity in his work and his will. Paul reminded us time and time again that God is sovereign and that out of his chosen work, he elected us and called us and adopted us and he brought us out of unbelievable diversity to make up this thing called the church. After talking about this amazing work and grounding us together in his work and making a level playing field at the cross, in chapter 4 and 5 and in part of 6, He begins to unfold for us what unity really looks like, where the rubber meets the road. What isn't just some statement, but what does church have to look like? What is the evidence that God is really in our lives, not just talking about it? What has grace afforded us to do? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And he talked about unity in church community. He said, put off the old life and begin walking in the new life. He said, there's no room in the church for lying. There's no room in the church for bitterness or rage or anger or malice. Unforgiveness cannot mark a local church in any place. All sexual action that the Bible forbids may not be found among us because our sex life and our work life and everything that we are is now worship to Jesus. He said, lying and stealing. And, and harsh and obscene talk will corrode the soul of a local church. He said, God has done such an unbelievable thing, bringing us together from such diversity. Don't go back to what you've been saved from and break the unity of God's work among us. He says, be kind to one another. He says, forgive one another. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, you better love your wife like Jesus loves the church. Employers, employees, parents, children. See, what he says is if God has really moved into your house, then God is going to begin to change your motives. Our language is going to change. Our relationships are going to change. Everything under God's power is going to be unnatural because God is truly building a church united that we're really all in this together beyond some superficial statement and like I've preached for months and others have too and how do we do this unnatural thing How do we do this almost unhuman thing? How do we really love each other, really stay united together? (laughs) Paul has said again and again, it will never be by our own power. You cannot will this into being. You can't be good enough to do this. Your education or background will not produce what the Bible says is a normal Christian community. He says, no, no, be filled with who? Say it loud, the Holy Spirit. We need a power source that is not within us to produce something that comes from heaven. It was Bonhoeffer who wrote that Christian community is not an ideal that must be realized. It is rather a reality created by God in Jesus that we get to participate in. Now Paul has done unbelievable work in this book of Ephesians. And right at the very end, I would expect him sort of to give a grand crescendo, excitement and fun and joy and a big party, very similar to what we just did in Auditorium B a few minutes ago. We'd expect a massive celebration at the end of this book that, yes, we're united. Yes, God has done this great thing in us. Yes, we can do this. And he suddenly stops us. And he says, before I end writing this letter to that church and all churches out of all times... I need to talk to you. I want to invoke an image and not just an image. Actually, I want to speak to you about a reality. I need to talk to you about war. Suddenly he he shockingly moves us to blood and guts and dirt and violence. He takes a turn that I would not expect. See, Paul wants us to know, God who inspired Paul, wants us to know that everything that we have been taught, everything that God has called us into, all that God has done already in us is under threat. And so he ends a letter that is about Christian unity, written to a church in one of the darkest spiritual cities of that time, and says to that church and then to us, God says, don't you dare C4 give up. And don't you dare give one little bit of ground to the enemy of our souls, that is the devil. Don't believe the modern myth and lie that the devil is just some archetype for evil. Or he's some little red devil on your shoulder talking to you. No, no. He is real. He is ancient. His minions, demons are real. And they want to destroy every single Christian living in this generation and all generations. And oh, how they hate the local church. They hate C4. And he says, you stand united as a church. You stand all in this together. Because do you not know how much is at stake? It is not just the reputation of you. It is the reputation of Jesus that is at stake. And not only that, the souls of Durham and the souls of Toronto and the souls of every generation are being fought over. Don't you know, church, if you don't stand, they lose forever. Now before we get into the image of the armor of God and this graphic description that Paul gives us of war. Let me stop this morning and re-remind us as a community of what we have already read and learned in the book of Ephesians about the devil and his defeat. See, Paul has been weaving this narrative all through the book. So when we get to the end, we will not commit two horrific sins. The one is self-sufficiency. I can take this on, no problem. I'll run into the battle and deal with this. You're going down if that's your perspective. But the greater sin among the church is not self-sufficiency, it's fear. We don't want to have this conversation. We use phrases like, well, let's not talk about the devil because we don't want to you know, lift him up too much. No, no, that's fear talking, not truth. So many of us don't want to have this conversation because we've watched The Exorcist and we're freaked right out. But I'm telling you this morning, we have learned out of the scriptures that the kingdom of darkness is broken, is defeated, and our Lord has already dealt with them. That is what we find here. So take your Bible back to Ephesians chapter 1, just to begin. The very first time I preached out of the book of Ephesians, what did we hear? Verse 3. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. There is only one God, there are not many, and God is found fully through the face of Jesus. And that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who deserves all blessing and all worship and all power, he has turned around and decided to bless us in Christ. But, like I preached in in the first week, notice where he chooses to bless broken people like us. When I was reading this for the first time again, I missed the impact of where this takes place, and see this matters when we face down self-sufficiency and fear and our identity is under threat. He chooses to bless us in heavenly realms. Now in Pauline theology, the heavenly realms is not heaven, and it is not earth. It is the space where the forces of evil, demons, and God's forces battle for and over the church and over humanity in every generation. And this is what I love. It's in the greatest place in the longest war in that space that we as Christians are blessed. Right in the middle of the war zone, we are lifted up with Christ. See, it's in that place That as I preached week one in Psalm 23, he makes a literal table for us in the presence of our enemies. This is the cosmological experience of Psalm 23. And so he begins the conversation saying that we are in Christ. What did he say in Ephesians 2.6? And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. We are seated in Christ. We are positionally in Jesus, and since Jesus has overcome the evil one in all forms, we also now sit with him. So since the devil is under his foot, the devil is under our foot also because we are in him. And so we as a church need to believe, appropriate, and stand with the authority of Jesus, and when our own heart says to us, you're not worthy, or you're crap, or you're nothing, or the world declares your faith is useless, or the evil one says, you are not owned by Jesus, we stand and say, no, no. I am seated. I am a saint. I am in Christ. I overcome you because I am in him. See, this is the ground conversation we need to all have before we get to chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 3.10. I love this passage. It was his intent that now through the church, through us messed up people, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. God called the church, you, and, and you, myself, us together. He calls us the manifold wisdom of God. Now, if you were here when I preached on this, this is amazing, an amazing idea. The word manifold is variegated. It comes from the world of fashion and nature. It was the word used to describe all the colors you find in fashion and in nature it was used in ancient times to talk about unbelievable clothing the the deeply intricate patterns you would find that that people spend their lifetimes building it was used for joseph's coat of many colors and god comes along and he says that the church The the deeply diverse, multicultural, multiracial, multigenerational, multi multi gifted church, we together, even though we're broken and messed up, we are the beauty and the color of God Himself. And who are we put on display in front of? Principalities, powers, rulers, and authorities. Rulers and authorities for Paul and Ephesians aren't political systems, they are demons. It is a way he talks about the fallen world. And he says, so we the wisdom of God, we the color of God, we the diversity of God, we the beauty of God, we together are God's object lesson to evil. They have to look at us in every generation. Our very existence and salvation reminds every demon and Lucifer himself that they are defeated. It causes them to cringe. We are living examples of why they have and always will lose and forever have lost. See, our existence... Our very positive possession by the Holy Spirit is a declaration to the highest unholy power. You have lost, you will never be God, you will never storm heaven again, you will never get God's throne, and you will never win us back. We are the manifold color and wisdom of God put on display to say to them, you chose the wrong side in this war. Broken people. In every generation who've said yes to Jesus become God's greatest display to the enemy of our souls. It's what Paul said in Colossians 2.15, writing to the sister church. And God, having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is what Jesus did on the cross. So all that needs to be remembered before we get to the armor of God because if we don't remember all this we're going to get involved in self-sufficiency or fear but there's something else we learned that I need to re-remind everyone about because it also says in Ephesians chapter 4:26 that everything that God has done everything we've learned everything that the promises that have been given to you and your family and to this church and every local church they can be grieved lost and tainted If we choose not to stand united, there is an implication if we choose not to stand or acknowledge this war. What did Paul teach us? Right in the middle of chapter 4, when he's working out what the duty of a Christian community looks like to really be in this together, Ephesians 4.26, in your anger don't sin, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, this was shocking to a lot of you. Both Pastor Lori and myself have preached on this. That word foothold in Greek is the word topos. It means a foot inside of you. This is written to Christians. I want to re-remind you. The word foothold means locality in Greek, occasion, opportunity, parts. It can mean a passenger, place. It was used to talk about reefs or regions or rooms. And Paul is warning every local church and saying, if you habitually, continually, unrepentedly, do not deal with your sin, he uses anger as an example, you as a Christian will give demonic influence, demonic right, ground, access, and privilege, area, locality, occasion, opportunity, place, region, and room to live, everyone ready, inside of you even though you are a Christian. This is so important that we understand this. This holds out the potential for succumbing to actual evil in a Christian life. Is this saying you're losing your salvation or possessed? No. We're possessed by God, Ephesians 4.30, and we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. But like Lori and I have both taught you, if the Christian, house, if the Christian, uh, Christian life looks like a, like a house... And Jesus is in the house and invited in the house and he owns the deed. If we, through habitual sin or occultic activity or you fill in the blank, if you play with fire, you will open a left bedroom window into the house owned by Jesus and squatters will always show up. And Paul takes this so seriously because what he is teaching here is some of us in this church have allowed a spiritual Trojan horse into our life, into our family, and yes, even into this community. Some of you are saying, well, John, I wasn't here for this. You're saying, I just want to get this, that a demon can be in me but not on me. Yes, that is exactly what Paul is teaching. How many demonic things are crawling around in us, in our connect groups, in our families, or in this worship service right now because we've played with fire and didn't think there would be supernatural consequences? See, everyone, catch this this morning, my good, fair hearted, nice Canadians. This is a real war, and it is not fair. And just because you don't think this could happen or this doesn't fit your theology or you don't really, really believe in demons because you know that's old school or you don't feel anything does not mean this will not happen or maybe it has already happened. And we wonder why church is so hard. We wonder why churches never seem to have lasting unity. And we wonder why faith and power and holiness and we wonder why connect groups fall apart and we wonder why people leave church without talking and bitter. We wonder why it is, could this maybe be a reason that we keep playing with fire and thinking it's just us and nothing else? The kingdom of darkness will do their best to bring us down, to hold us back and to reclaim. Now here's the good news. We are above them in Jesus and our most broken of states. They are under Jesus' feet and under our feet. But if we do not stand in unity, if we choose not to guard the local church, they will never own us, they cannot steal our salvation, but they will grieve and they will interfere and they will deaden much of God's work among us and in your life. Why? Because we decided to give them back the keys they don't have anymore. The kingdom of darkness cannot walk into a local church and say, I'm here. But if we welcome them, trust me, if there's any place on earth the demonic want to be, it's in a church. Why? Because we're the hope of the world, everybody. So he says now, with all that teaching, how do we guard the church? I mean, how do we do this long term? And so now to Ephesians 6. He says in Ephesians 6.10, so finally, now notice this. Finally, this is my last concluding major thought I want to give you on church unity. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Here's the translation, C4. Guard what has already been done among us. Guard your unity. Guard your identity. Guard your salvation. Do not give ground. There is no excuse for topos among any of us. Like I said, this is a real, honest, dangerous war. And notice the command is not given to just you as an individual or myself. It's given to all of us. He's saying the whole church has to make the decision to be strong in the Lord. Now, this is not a request. God is not being deeply Canadian at this moment. He's not saying sorry five times. He's saying, do this. This is a command. Be strong in the Lord. Because the war isn't just coming, and it's not just metaphorical. You're living in it right now. And what I learned this week is this is written in the present tense. In other words, this is what the Bible teaches us. Every morning, we need to ask for the power of God. This is something we keep doing. So many of us have a Christian perspective like this. Can you imagine if I said to my wife once, I love you, and said, well, that's enough. I told her once and never said it to her again. How do you think things are going to go at my house? Really bad really bad. She's looking at me really bad. And yet so many of us, when it comes to being filled with the Spirit, which is a continual thing, and this, think, well, I've prayed once to be protected, so I'm fine. Are you joking me? Be asking for God's power every single day. And why are we asking for it? Because we're actually in a real Battle. This is the longest battle in human history. And natural strength will not help you here. Personality will not help you here. Personal resolution will not help you here. Knowledge alone will not help you here. Education will not help you here. Personality in any form, strong or weak, has no effect. But when the Spirit of Jesus Christ comes, then things change. So that's why he says in verse 11, Put on the whole armor of God or the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Let me say this again to you. The devil hates you with a hate you do not even understand. What we have seen in history of great excruciating wickedness, the Holocaust is a brilliant example. That hate we see there, quadruple it times a thousand, and you will maybe know the hate they have for you. Why? Because every human being, Christian or not on earth, is made in whose image? Say it loud. God's image. And every time a demon sees a human, oh, how they hate us because we are billboards, all of us, even unregenerate, of God himself. And they hate God so much, and so they hate us. Why do you think demons love being in people? Because they couldn't be in the throne in heaven. So where's the only other place where God's throne is residing? Right in a human heart. It is pure blasphemy and joy for them to be in us. And they hate us because we're all walking around. All seven plus billion of us are the image of God. And oh, how they hate our creator. And they hate you more if you're a Christian. Why? Because every time they see you, they actually go and see like x-ray into you. And who do they see? They see the one who has defeated them. Like I've preached before, you're walking down in Pickering Town Center and you're in the gap and you're buying your thing on sale, and a demon walks by you and you don't even know it's there. Oh my goodness, how they freak out. You're like, I'm just twelve ninety nine. This is really exciting. But the thing walking by you is like, oh, there's that Jesus Christ in that person. Oh, how I want to destroy that person. Why? See, they hate you, they hate the Bible, they hate every local church, they hate godliness. See, spiritual warfare doesn't just happen when demons are cast out of people. No, biblical spiritual warfare happens every time a Christian brings the kingdom of God on earth. Every time the reign and rule of God is welcomed, it replaces their kingdom. Every time you don't lie, spiritual warfare. Every time you say no to pornography, spiritual warfare. Every time you forgive someone, spiritual warfare. Every time you love the poor, spiritual warfare. Every time we do something that is the reverse of their kingdom, we are declaring Jesus is around. And why do they want to see the local church destroyed? Why do they, why is it their vision statement, mission statement, goal statement? Why is it their joy and delight? Why do they seek 24 hours a day the destruction of this church and every other local church on earth? Let me tell you why. Because we are possessed by the one that has overcome them and we carry the message that actually can take all the people they own out of their kingdom into ours. Don't you see how serious this is? they hate c4 and they hate south side and they hate hebron christian reform and they hate calvary baptist and they hate harvest and they hate people's church you fill in the blank they hate any church that exalts jesus christ because we are their greatest threat because of the one who is in us and so they come and he says you take your stand you put on the full armor of god why because the devil's schemes are coming so what are they Well, they're going to attack us and tempt us and oppress us. And if we let them, demonize us. And they attack in the most overt ways, in the most subtle of ways. They ask us to doubt God's goodness. God's not good. Look what he let happen into your life. No good loving God would let happen. Like, come on. How he accuses us of our sin, our struggles. Oh, how he loves to bring up our past. How he loves to present our present struggles. How he loves to whisper to us, Jesus doesn't love you. Look at you. Your life is garbage and nothing. I I know how you think, I know what you live like. They love pointing us to things we don't have. Oh, God loves you, but look at the house that person has. Oh, God doesn't love you. Those people are married and you're not. They will continually point you to things that you don't have, so you will doubt the Creator's goodness. They will attack our corporate and personal identity. They will say, they will infer, they will whisper, and they will even use other people and even Christians to say, you're not a saint. You don't have grace. You don't have peace with God. You're not included in Christ. You're not blessed in the heavenly realms with spiritual blessings in Jesus. You're not seated with Christ. You're not chosen, you're not called, you're not foreknown. Please, you're not adopted. No son and daughter of God is found here. I know who you are. Look at your life. Look what you struggle with. Look at the family you've come from. You don't have redemption. There's no forgiveness for you. There is no way God wants to forgive you. Or that sin's so big, he would never forgive you. Sealed by the Holy Spirit, please. You're not sealed. Actually, you're spiritually dead. Don't you know you have to give into sin? Actually, we own you. Not Jesus. We do. You need us. You want us. You've you've had us since childhood, and we've helped you with anger, and we've protected you, and you want to trust that God who wasn't there when things were so horrific? Where was God when everything went down? We were there. Where was he? Not saved by grace alone, they whisper. You need to make sure God loves you, so work really hard. Be deeply religious, and maybe God upstairs will pay attention to you. You're garbage. You're nothing. You're crap. You're worthless. Or they whisper the reverse. You're so good. You're so amazing. You don't need church. You don't need other Christians. Look how awesome. Do you really even need God? Who needs daily bread? You've got law laws. Let's get on with life. The schemes are varied. They're in your faith, and they're in your face, and they're dangerous. Oh, they'll promote thoughts and situations for all of us. They'll say bitterness and rage and malice and unforgiveness are acceptable. They'll tell you that all forms of sexual exploration are just fine. You know, that old Bible thing is just totally out of touch. They'll talk about harsh speech as needed. They'll say lying sometimes, you just got to do it, stealing. Come on, it's OK. Uh, they'll say, "That person deserves not to be unfor- uh, be forgiven." <laughs> they'll say, "Don't you dare pray for renewal." They'll whisper, "Don't pray for a revival. that's such a stupid thing. Awakening. Don't listen to your pastors. This church is so extreme. Don't, don't, don't pray for those old things. Let's just do church and be happy with what... It, let's live a good, comfortable life. John, blah, blah, revival. Just ignore every time he says that, and anyone else does too. Because you know what? It's never coming. God doesn't really do things like that. The real thing they do, which so many people in church never want to talk about, is they will put thoughts and struggles in your mind or situation. You have never naturally been attracted or wanted. You'll have thoughts in your brain that are so extreme or perverted, and when you have it, suddenly you're sitting there going, where did that come from? And they will whisper in your ear, oh, see, you're that. So you thought it, so you already are there, so why don't you just give in, because we know that you're that thing. And you're like, oh my goodness, I thought that, I've never thought that before, I must, I must be this, and suddenly you go down a path, and they blur temptation and sin all the time. Just because you thought it doesn't mean you're that thing. But they will tell you you are. His schemes are so dangerous. And so, this is what he says for our struggle, verse 12. It's not against flesh and blood. I know a lot of people in church think it is. You think it's a fight between us, you know, family. Like I said, our church, like every church, is like a good Thanksgiving dinner, dysfunctional and crazy. But it's not. It's against rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You know, I didn't know this until this week, that word struggle. I've read this passage, I've lectured on this passage, I've preached on this passage, but I never knew that the word struggle in Greek actually was only used for hand-to-hand combat. It is the most personal, in-your-face type of experience. And from war to sports, he uses the metaphor of wrestling, and I don't know much about wrestling. You can tell I've never wrestled in my life, but whether you watch the fake stuff or the real stuff, one thing I do know about wrestling is it is, it is the most personal, closest of sports you are touching. And Paul says, don't you understand, every one of you? That this war is so real, it is corporate, it needs to be acknowledged, it needs to be embraced, it needs to be understood, and oh church, hear this this morning, everyone look up for a moment, you can't run from this. It is hand-to-hand combat, and the war has been happening since Genesis chapter 3. And notice it's not if, but when the day of evil comes when our church unity is threatened, when you're overwhelmed with the urge to sin, when that ungodly presence shows up and you feel like you're being choked out at three o'clock in the morning, when you're persecuted for your faith, what do you do? Because not if, but when the day of evil comes, when the day of evil comes. In other words, friends, the day of evil is coming multiple times over in our Christian walk. He says, what do we do? Verse 13, therefore, Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may stand your ground. And after you've done everything, stand. The image here is of standing. Now, Paul, of course, is contextual. He's always writing to his audience. So this is what he's doing. Paul, in his mind, has the, so- has the experience of a Roman soldier of his day in his mind when he's writing this. And everyone in the Roman Empire had seen a Roman soldier more than once. And not only that, most people probably knew someone who had been in the service. And so Paul has a very graphic image in his mind as he's writing this to display what hand-to-hand combat is. So here's what I want to do. I don't usually do this. I'm not usually a guy who shows movies in my sermons. You know that. I'm not against it. But I want to show a two-minute clip from Gladiator. And here's why. Because I was recalling this when I first saw this. That in Gladiator, there is a scene of hand-to-hand combat in a large war zone. And as we watch this this morning, I want you to look very carefully at the uniforms. I want you to watch arrows. And I want you to see the intensity of the closeness of combat. Because this is the graphic image Paul has. Now, if there's a little kid in here, you need to get them out right now. Okay? This is a rated R moment in our sermon. Okay? But I'm not doing this for shock value. I'm not. This is truly what Paul has in his mind. So I want everyone to watch this, and then I'm going to preach through the armor. Let's watch it together. Welcome to a normal Christian life. See, that's the image he had in his mind. And you'll notice it as we start going through it. But that line of Roman soldiers in the church is made up of grandmothers, and housewives, and doctors, and nurses, and lawyers. It's made up of us. And he says, you see the intensity of how close that is? The proximity? He says, what's running at us isn't a human being, it's evil itself. The same evil that looked into God's face and resisted him is running at us. He says, now, take up the armor of God. Now what I love about the scripture is it says in Isaiah 59, 17, that the armor that we're putting on is God's own armor. He put on, this is God, the, the righteousness as his blessed breastplate and the helmet of salvation. The armor of God is both a gift from God and is also obedience to God. It is both things. It is a gift and, and when we obey. It is a command and a promise. And this is the command. C4, in this generation, in this moment, in this region of this great war, you stand. Because all things are at stake. He says, stand firm then with a belt of truth, verse 14, buckled around your waist with a breastplate of righteousness in place. The belt in the Roman soldier's uniform was a big leather one that would keep the tunic up, would attach the sword, and would provide mobility during situations like that. You don't want your tunic being grabbed and suddenly you're put down because they were able to grab it. Now the belt for the Christian is what? Say it loud. Truth. It is truth, it is knowing truth, it is knowing God's word, it is doctrine, it is knowing what God says about himself, about the world, about situations. The whole armor is held together by truth. If you don't have the belt, the rest of the armor falls apart. But it's not just knowing truth, it's living out truth. Every single time you don't steal, the belt of truth is on. Every time you don't lie, the belt of truth goes on. When you submit in a godly way, the belt of truth goes on. When you love your wife as Jesus loves the church, the belt of truth goes on. When you forgive, the belt of truth goes on. It is about knowing truth and obeying the truth. We are called to be people marked by truth. Biblical integrity means everything to us. He says, put on the belt of truth. And then he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. What protects your heart? What protects your lungs? What protects your vital organs? It's the breastplate. Now the breastplate here is Jesus' righteousness on us. This is what I love. He says in 2 Corinthians five twenty one, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When the evil one comes and assaults us, we say, no, no, it is not my work. It is Jesus's righteousness that covers my vital organs spiritually. But also every time we act righteously, that breastplate goes on. He says, know the truth and put it on. Live out the righteousness you have been given. And then he says, he moves from belt and breastplate to feet. He said, and your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now, you couldn't see it in the movie there, but here's what you need to know. Roman's shoes were not for running, fronting running away or running at the enemy. You notice they marched in unison They were large half-boots with massive nails. It's sort of like football cleats on steroids, if that can sort of give you. And what were they used for? They were used for marching, and then in the middle of hand-to-hand combat, they were used to dig into the ground so you would stand your ground so if someone pushed you, you wouldn't move. Why do Christians fall all the time? Because they doubt God's peace. Why are we continually kicked to the ground by the evil one and the world in the flesh? Because we don't believe what the Bible already says we have. And so we falter. The shoes of peace are the declaration that we are loved by God, we are saved by God, we are at peace with God, and that's just true. It's what he said in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say in response? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am convinced, I have peace. I know that I know that neither death or life Angels or demons, the present or the future, or any power, height, depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the shoes of peace. But if you keep doubting your salvation and wondering if you're in and running up every Friday night to make sure you're in, you will never stand. He says, Belt, breastplate, and shoes. And then he says, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. We just saw it in the film. One of the most terrifying things in the ancient battlefield was lit arrows. You saw the havoc it caused, but not, not only that, they would light shields on fire, so you have to throw the shield down, and when you throw the shield down, you're exposed, and suddenly everyone around you is exposed, because shields were used to build walls and to build roofs. And so if you drop your shield, we all get exposed. But this shield is not like those shields. This shield, when the flaming arrow hits, the flame goes out. It's the shield of faith. Well, what does that mean? How do I put on this shield? And you notice the size of them. They were four feet by two feet. like They're like a door. So how do you stand behind the shield? It's this. Jesus is our shield. Jesus is our shield, his faithfulness, his promises, his love, as we stand in and among him, and as we believe his faithfulness towards us, and we live and obey under that faithfulness, the shield of faith goes up every single time. Uh, The demon comes and says, I know your past. You say, but I'm forgiven. Shield up. You say, oh, I know what you looked at last night at 3 a.m. Yes, but I've confessed it. Shield up. Every sin is on the body of my Savior. Shield up. He says, you take up the shield of faith, but you notice it's a community thing. Because if we're not taking up the shield of faith, we're exposing each other. He says, not only that, he says, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. See, our salvation is complete, everyone. Ephesians 2.5, for it is by grace you, what? Have. No, no, I'm sorry. We've got to be a little bit more exciting. You cheered for Canada. This is God. Okay. <laughs> it is by grace you have, what? Have. Say it past tense. It's done. The helmet of our salvation is our assurance. It is on. It guards our mind and how we think. I am saved, not because of what I did, but because of Jesus Christ, Jesus alone, faith alone, by grace alone, through Jesus Christ. I know that I know I'm saved. Why? Because of his love for me, his faithfulness. That's my helmet, not my own. He says, you stand with that helmet, and then you take up the word of God. This is the only thing that's going to draw blood from the enemy right here. Now, it's interesting. In the Greek, it's actually a small short sword. You saw it in the movie and was only used for hand-to-hand combat. This isn't Braveheart with some massive sword. It's like this long. And it's only used when you're this close. And he says, when you are in proximity to the evil one, what do you do? You take up the word of God. And you say, no, but God's word says this. God says about his word in 2 Timothy 3.16 that this is God-breathed. In Hebrews, it says it's alive and active. And what I really love is this. When Jesus, who was God himself, was tempted by the evil one, the prince of this world, when the devil came in in Matthew chapter 4 and offered him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, if you just worship me, you can have all this. Jesus, notice what he said, away from me, Satan, for it is written... And he quotes the Bible. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him. You want the evil one to be removed from our church? You want the evil one to be removed from your life? From your mind? From your soul? You want the evil one out of your family? You want the evil one? Listen, you stand in righteousness and you start saying, but God's word says this. And he has to go. James 4, 7. Submit yourself therefore to God and resist the devil. He what? Must flee. Well, Paul ends this conversation at the very end by either adding another piece of the armor or summarizing by saying, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this be in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's Lord's people. He says, pray. This isn't speaking in tongues, by the way, though it's included. This is all sorts of prayers. And who are we supposed to pray for? We are supposed to pray for all the Lord's people. See, one of the great problems in this church and all churches is we only pray about ourselves. We don't pray over the battle for this church. See, let me bring this home to you as I begin to end. Renewal... And revival and awakening isn't just some catchword we're using around here. When we are asking for God to renew us personally, we are asking for God to come and bring His kingdom in such an amazing way. We're different tomorrow. And when we're praying for revival, we're asking for God's kingdom to show up in this church in such a mighty way that they, the evil one, and the flesh, and the devil, and sin have to leave. And when we're praying for awakening, we're praying it spills over to thousands of non-Christians. So elders... My fellow elders, are you praying for this church or are you faltering? Staff, the people never go beyond their leaders. Are you faltering in your personal prayer time or are you wrestling with God so we win? Every person in this church is responsible and invited and promised to pray in the Spirit with all kinds of prayers and requests. You can do this as a stay-at-home parent, as a lawyer, as a doctor, as a nurse, as a business person. Trust me, you can change diapers and pray for the spiritual renewal of the church. I have done it. You can pray at all times. And then Paul ends the book for only a very few times pointing to himself. He says, pray for me too. That whenever I speak, words may be given to me, so I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. We've spent the whole year in the book of Ephesians for one reason because we needed to understand what unity looked like. Not just because every church, no, there's a reason why in the season. Because next week I start preaching out of Joshua. And friends, God has promised us very significant things because he has decided so. And we are about to enter the promised land together. Thousands are going to be saved. Revival is coming in greater measure here. But if we don't get this unity thing down, it's all going to be lost. So what is the takeaway out of this whole series and today? Here's the first thing. Everything God has done among us can be lost or at least squashed. So, okay. Okay. Cell phone's down, unless you're taking notes. This is a critical moment. How do we respond this morning? Here's the first thing. I'm asking every person in the sound of my voice, so iTunes, Vimeo, this is you too, to request something of our God. I'm asking every person in this church to pray a prayer many of us don't want to pray. And it's this, Lord, show me the war for real. I want every person in this church, without fear, because we know who we are, right? We're seated with Christ. We, I want every person in this church to lay down their self-sufficiency. I don't need this talk. And fear, I'm so afraid of this. And every person to say, no, you've assigned me in this time to this war. And so this is the prayer. Lord Jesus, peel back the veil. You show me. Is there something in me? I'm not going to be afraid because you're going to set me free. Am I in trouble? Lord, where's the enemy in my family? Lord, where's the enemy in this church? Lord, you start showing me where the enemy is working in this region. Because if you don't believe in this war, you'll never stand. And so this is a request, not for just the ooh moment, it is saying, Lord, I know your Bible says this is true, I believe this is truth. I am requesting that you open my eyes to such a level that I've never even desired or wanted before, where I will actually see where the kingdom of darkness is genuinely working so I can start standing. Every person in this church needs to pray this because we need to stand together. But if we don't believe this war is real or we're running away or some of us are running half naked into the battle, oh, look at me, I've got the breastplate of righteousness, but everything else is off, trouble. Trouble. So the first request, and we'll do it in a minute, is that. Here's the second thing. As one of your pastors, one of your fellow Christians, but as one of your leaders... I say to you this morning, I say to you in the strongest of terms, stand, because everything is at stake. Our unity is at stake. The future of people in Durham, in Toronto, are at stake. You need to stand in private when no one's looking. You need to put up the shield at 3 a.m. and at 10 o'clock and during the day. You have to stand because the rest of us are relying on you. And you are relying on us. And we're all relying on Jesus. This is a community thing. We have to stand in private and stand in public. And we need to ask for the power of God. We need to stand and put our helmet on and say, we know our salvation is sure. We need to say, the breastplate is given to me. I'm secure in my righteousness because it's his righteousness. We need to know truth. We need to stand behind the shield called Jesus. We need to have the peace that's fitted on us already and say, no, I know this is true. And we need to continue to grow as a church in such prayer that we are regularly, continually giving all sorts of prayers and requests on behalf of ourselves and the whole church. We are called to this. This is how things change. This is how the evil one leaves. This is how community transformation happens at the core. When the human heart changes, a family changes. When the human heart changes, a community changes. You want to deal with drugs in Durham? Invite Jesus into Durham. You want to deal with marriage breakdowns? Start praying that God shows up and the evil one is removed and watch marriages be restored. We want to see revival and renewal and awakening. Stand as a church and say, Oh, God, under your power, we will do this because we're not going to be selfish. We are going to stand for ourselves. in the world he says pray stand and pray again I end with this Paul says would you please pray for me so the gospel goes out fearlessly and as the band comes up one last reflection I just want you to hear this the last thing Paul says is he says these words he says I want to go tell some other people there's hope and I the great apostle Paul need your prayers. I need God to show up in such a way that the gospel will go out, and here's the word, fearlessly. So you all watched that movie like I did, and you said, if that's really the normal Christian life, I'm a little afraid. And Paul says, but if you pray and God shows up, you won't fear. So our church needs to be in a place where we begin and continue and ever grow and say, oh Lord, may we not only stand together May we actually begin to be fearless as we tell people about Jesus because we know, we know that it's God's election will to bring people to himself in this region and take them out of the clutches of the evil one into the hands of his son. It's the great prayer that Beth wrote for us out of John 6.44. Oh God, give Durham to Jesus. This is a great call, a great command And a great invitation. Church, do not fear. For Jesus has overcome the evil one. Jesus loves this church. Jesus is going to keep setting this church free. And many other people are about to be set free. And the principalities and powers and rulers and authorities that are in Durham and in Toronto already know this truth. It's time we wake up and actually say they're right except they're defeated. So would you join me in prayer as we end this message? God, the unity of our church is so important. And honestly, Lord, we need your help. And so a few things we would pray. Number one, uh, Lord, give our church courage and root us in the truth. And so, number one, like, Lord, show us where the enemy's at work. And show us your glory when you do it so we're not afraid. But show us, show us in ourselves, in our families, in our connect- Like, show us his hands, his fingerprints, his presence. Number two, Lord, help this church. We pray for the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith, and the shoes of the gospel of peace on our church. And lastly, Lord, we pray that the gospel will go out fearlessly in our community so many others will be set free from the kingdom that has been defeated. Thank you, Lord, for your confidence, your love, your beauty, and your promises to us. Help us to stand in a power that is not our own. In Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. And can I ask you to stand, and can I just say this as we stand? As we go and realize the battle is much more real than many of us thought? Has Jesus won, yes or no? Then go in peace, because it's done.